Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This week's episode is brought to you by Huge. The world's most ambitious companies partner with Huge to deliver value to their users and transform their industries. Contact Huge to learn how connected brand experiences can change your business. Visit hugeinc.com. That's hugeinc.com to learn more. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, television, pop culture. It's in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, great to have you back. Thanks for having me. Also returning, uh, we've got a few uh, recurring visitors here, but I don't know how recently uh, one has been here. Christine, it's been a little while since we had you on here. Welcome back. Yeah, it has. Thanks. Christine Berkner is a staff writer covering uh, branding and marketing and all, all sorts of other magical things around Adweek, and uh, g- got a lot for her to talk about today. Also, we've got back Jason Lynch, our writer covering the television industry. Jason, welcome back to the podcast. Hello. Happy to be here. All right. Well, let's dive in. Today on the podcast, uh, whew, United has got quite a PR disaster on their hands. We're going to talk about what happened there, how they can possibly earn their way back into Traveler's Good Graces. We'll also talk about Bill O'Reilly, speaking of uh, kind of big PR issues. We talked about this a little bit, but we'll get an update on his struggle to keep advertisers. And we're going to talk about the success of Serial's S-Town uh, experimental podcast, what we thought of that, how it's gone for them. And then we're going to have our big discussion of the week is about Atlanta and how the city has become the envy of the marketing world, thanks to its thriving brand and tech scene and talent explosion. But first, the news. Well, move over, Pepsi. Just when you thought you had the awesomest PR disaster of 2017 in the marketing world, no, that has title has gone to United Airlines. So as most of you have probably heard, uh, they had a flight that was not technically overbooked, uh, but it was sure full up, and then they had to squeeze on some crew. And when they did that, they asked four people to volunteer uh, to get off the plane. I think we've all been in that situation where they just keep offering you piles of money and hotel stays and free vouchers. But in this case, people did not take them up on it. And they had to basically pick random people to just get up and leave. One of the passengers chose not to leave. And he was dragged by the cops out screaming from the airplane. And of course, everyone around him had a cell phone and recorded it. And uh, it was once that hit, 
really exploded very, very quickly from there. Uh, first, you know, this is not uh, United's first uh, kind of social media problem that they've had this year. They also had an incident where a passenger uh, wrote about that uh, the airline not letting uh, two teenage girls on because they were wearing leggings. Turned out they had a, a special employee and family pass that required a certain dress code, uh, but that sparked a lot of social backlash for the airline. This one was far beyond that. Uh, Tim, I'm just wondering if you can kind of draw the, a distinction between uh, the PR disaster Pepsi had with its Kendall Jenner ad versus this one. This this feels quite a bit more serious to the to the over overall business. It does. I mean, it's the biggest difference, of course, is this is something that happened in the real world and not something that happened in in their communications. So, you know, on in some level, I mean, it was it was pretty horrifying the video, obviously, and I think the shocking nature of the video. Uh, is, you know, is pretty damaging. Uh, at the same time, you know, I mean, I, I think uh, airlines have enormous PR problems every day. So, they, you know, airlines don't have that far to fall when it comes to perception. Something like Pepsi was, you know, was super noteworthy, partly because, you know, you have a relatively well-liked brand. So I think the question you ask is really what what's wrong with the culture at these companies and the culture at airlines is, is notoriously worse than the, the culture at many, at many brands. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think obviously, you know, loads of people dislike United already and dislike the airline industry. Uh, th this will probably just cement those, those negative opinions as opposed to a company like Pepsi, which people sort of generally liked, um, taking a big hit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I think Pepsi, in some ways, as we talked about last week, um, what happened with Pepsi also indicates a problem with the co company culture. And so it's kind of six of one, half dozen of the other. But the difference is obviously someone was actually sort of hurt during this incident um, as opposed to feelings hurt, which was primarily the Pepsi situation. Christine, you uh, lived in Chicago before moving to New York uh, and covered marketing and brands there. You also just wrote a uh, long feature that we'll talk about a little bit later about Delta and kind of their commitment to customer service and how it's helped them stand apart. Uh, you know, what do you think are United's uh, chances here of rebuilding their brand and, and what, what should they do in this moment? Well, they already got the response wrong. Basically, the CEO, I think, came out and sort of um, blamed the passenger and said the passenger was belligerent. Um, and then that letter from the CEO um, leaked yesterday to the employees saying he would back up the employees. So basically they issued a non-apology apology on Twitter um, that was kind of, I mean, they didn't really own up to this so far. So I think they have a long way to go to repair their reputation. Yeah, when you talk about PR disaster, I, I mean, a lot of what defines it as a PR disaster is the way you communicate what has gone wrong or the way you, you kind of take ownership for that. In this one, uh, very very notably, their initial tweets were, were really kind of dismissive of the whole thing. Basically, the initial tweet said, you'll have to talk to the cops. Like, the cops took that person off, not yeah. us. I mean, and then the follow-up, the, the statement from the CEO, uh, said, said, you know, apologized, but apologized for having to reaccommodate. Re and that suddenly became a buzzword. I mean, everyone's making fun of the word reaccommodate, which what the hell does that even mean? So I think, you know, it's kind of a joke the way they responded to it. 
th- this feels very similar to the Pepsi situation in the sense that, you know, a lot of the problem with that was this feeling that the corporation or at least the brand marketing team was living in a bubble and just mm-hmm. was not talking to normal human beings, which, which you know, SNL poked fun at, we'll talk about in a little bit. But, uh, you know, in this case, it feels like the CEO was basically looking to a PR person who said, oh, we're not going to say that we, you know, dragged him off. We're not going to say that we, you know, we're going to say we reaccommodated. And instead (laughs) of doing what a normal human should do and say, but that's bullshit and we're going to get called out on it. And so he's like, yeah, good word. Yeah. And I mean, Jimmy Kimmel had his, um, he had a great video making fun of it last night. Um, I mean, it really summed it up. (laughs) Well, the uh, other in, you know, ongoing kind of uh, public image issue that we've been covering is the O'Reilly factor. Bill O'Reilly, uh, as we mentioned, I believe on the last episode, it had just come out. Uh, New York Times did a front page expose on the number, the surprising number of sexual harassment claims against him that Fox News has been settling to try to keep those out of the limelight. And uh, he has not, you know, he's basically says, uh, yeah, we settled those, but we settled it just to kind of, you know, j- just to keep it people from exploiting me i I didn't do anything wrong advertisers have been fleeing uh i think when we recorded last week's podcast there were only three and i think we even made the comment of there will probably be more by the time we're done recording this it is now more than 60 uh advertisers who have pulled out um and the few several of the ones who still ended up on the show uh ended up saying uh sorry we weren't we didn't mean to be advertisers on the show (laughs) and then pulled out after the fact um the interesting thing about this, though, is that his ratings are quite a bit up. I, I guess no real surprise that. I mean, he's got this very loyal fan base. But, Jason, what do you take of this? What do you make of this kind of uh, distinction between he's got high ratings, but, you know, his ad load is dropping and, and the number of ad supporters is really drying up? Uh, yes, I mean, it's a good point. And the other important thing to note is that all those advertisers who have pulled out of his show have not taken their money out of Fox News overall. So the network isn't losing money at this point, losing ad revenue. Uh, None of these brands or advertisers have said, we are not going to advertise on Fox News until O'Reilly is not there anymore. So I think the feeling is everybody from the network executives, O'Reilly himself and the advertisers are just going to try to wait out the storm. And I feel like within the next week, couple weeks, you know, we'll see some of these brands slowly creep back into the show, especially because the ratings are still there. It would be one thing if the ratings were plummeting and everybody was just fleeing, but the audience is still there. And you know, brands, unfortunately, are going to go where the eyeballs all are. So I think we're going to see some of them start to creep back. Well, what is the difference between a lot of people have pointed out the fact that the network uh, acted, you know, pretty uh, decisively with Roger Ailes when, when a lot of his sexual harassment allegations came to light. But they seem to really be much more defensive and kid glove, uh, you know, with with Bill O'Reilly. Like wh- why the difference between how they treat those two? Well, I think last year with Ailes, it was more about the whole culture of the country of of the network. And here, for whatever reason, it's really more specifically about O'Reilly himself. And uh, the New York Times had been working on this story for months and months and months. The network and O'Reilly knew it was coming. Yet during that time, they quietly renewed his contract. So it's not like they were caught unawares. This was all coming out. Uh, for whatever reason, they've felt that uh, 
whatever hit they took would be a temporary one. Whereas with Ailes last year, I think the feeling was it, it spoke more to problems with the entire culture of the network. Now, the argument could be made that you can, the same culture problems are existing right now with O'Reilly because it seems to stretch beyond him. But for whatever reason, they're just focusing on him and they feel like this is something that's going to be survivable. Well, one person who is willing to advertise on the O'Reilly Factor is John Oliver. Uh, as we've uh, talked about previously, he has uh, resurrected his own version of the catheter cowboy, uh, inspired by kind of Fox News low-budget ads that tend to run during the shows. And uh, he has made several of those to speak directly to Donald Trump. Now he has created one that he wanted to air during Bill O'Reilly, but said that they did not get back to him. Let's listen to the catheter cowboy episode that he made just for Bill O'Reilly. Attention catheter patients. Howdy again. I'm a professional cowboy. I use catheters and there's two things I know. I don't like pain when I cath. And repeated unwanted sexual advances or obscene remarks in the workplace constitute sexual harassment. If there's a power disparity between the two parties, well, that's about as inappropriate as lubricating a catheter with hot sauce, partner. Why would you do that? I do not like pain when I cath. So it will be interesting to see. I, I, I personally doubt that we're going to see any kind of decisive move here. It feels like this just going to be the kind of story that trickles out more, you know, kind of dies a slow, a slow conversational death than any abrupt decision. But we shall see. One uh, other story that uh, was interesting on Adweek.com this week, uh, we had an update on S-Town, the podcast that the Serial and This American Life team put out together what made S-Town different, for those of you who didn't notice it when it first dropped, is that they put out every episode at the same time. Uh, and I remember at the time I even kind of wondered, why not just make this serial season three? Uh, there's a few reasons, and it's hard to discuss without spoiling a, a lot of the... It is a podcast that is spoiled simply by knowing what happens, but I think the the decision to drop every episode at once, uh, to me, I, my hunch is that it was inspired more by... Uh, just not wanting, you know, if you put out an episode once a week, and we saw this with Serial, you put out an episode and then you've created one week of social media discussion around all the allegations and all the things that arose in that one episode. The problem with uh, S-Town is it's a bit of an unreliable narrator kind of a story where you, the people who you think are the villains aren't necessarily the villains in the second episode. And the people, you know, you may find yourself hating and despising someone, but rather than tweeting about, I think that person did it, or I think that person's to blame, instead you just listen to the next episode. <laughs> and then you find out like, oh, oh, okay, I guess maybe that person did have an excuse. Have any of you listened to it? Christine, have you listened yet? No. Jason? Uh, I love it. I I went through the whole thing in a couple days, and considering the number of TV screeners that are piling up, um, that really speaks to how great those first couple episodes were because I couldn't get enough once I listened to, uh, especially the end of that second episode where the big twist that we don't want to spoil, uh, that's really, you know, after that point, that's where I was kind of hooked in for the rest of the run. Tim, did you get to check it out at all? I haven't yet. Uh, I, I understand it takes place in Alabama, though, so you must be pretty into it. Yeah, it's like 15 minutes south of where I am right now as I speak. Uh, yeah, it's Bibb County, which is just south of Birmingham, but it is a world away from Birmingham, <laughs> you know, which comes up a lot in the podcast is that Birmingham is a is a big, wonderful kind of, you know, city. It's a cosmopolitan city. Um, Bibb County, uh, just south of us, is a very rural, very white uh, area and um, a, a completely different 
slice of the South. And man, it is a, whew, it's quite a, quite a, uh, you know, it's like this almost uh, helicopter journalism of this New York reporter just swooping in. But man, he, he really does get a very authentic, deep South experience, at least in terms of the accents, which even as an Alabamian, I found to be very addictive uh, when you listen to that show. Are, are people, uh, are people talking about it in Birmingham? Is it sort of a, a hot topic? Yeah, and there was actually a story the other day about uh, people specifically in Bibb County and what they think of it, uh, and they generally were like, "Yeah, yeah, that was really good." Um, they, I mean, it's a it's a very uh, accurate depiction. I, I think the only complaint I saw is that people are saying, "Oh, he he gets the geography a little wrong," or he mentioned certain towns being, you know, it's just one of those things where it was really hyper specific complaints. But it's it's definitely been a huge hit. It's been downloaded over sixteen million times, uh, you know, in total. Uh, which makes it certainly one of the most successful podcasts of all time. And it really was a test of this idea of, you know, what happens if you drop every episode at once in the Netflix style of, uh, you know, here, here's every episode versus the HBO style of having to wait uh, and and then, you know, either binge it all at once or, or take it one episode at a time. Uh, Jason, do you think we're going to see this this model of of storytelling catch on of, of the Netflix style full drop of a podcast season? I think that both approaches have their advantages, but I'm certainly fascinated to find out when the next uh, ep- uh, season of Serial comes out, which approach they're going to take. Because there was something about waking up on Wednesday or Tuesday morning and you know you have the next episode, it's already been downloaded, ready to go. But it was also great to kind of tear through this uh, this addictive S-Town story in the space of two days. So I, I, I almost feel like uh, Julie Snyder and Sarah Koenig will have a lot to say uh, about which direction these podcasts take, depending on what they do with the next season of Serial. Yeah, and, you know, you bring up a good point, too, which is that each, you know, discussing S-Town, even discussing it right here is very difficult because— you you can't take it episode by episode. Like when Serial was coming out, after every episode you could say, okay, well, I don't want to spoil this episode by... I mean, I don't even know if you were too worried about spoiling it, you know, because it's not... It's, it's true crime. You can't really spoil it. And this one's true too, but I, I can't talk about any one episode and I can't even talk about the series without spoiling something about it. And that has made it the hardest thing to talk about of any show podcast I've ever seen because <laughs> except maybe the OA I feel like the OA was as close as it got to where you almost couldn't even discuss it without giving away too much um but yeah it'll be interesting to see the effect it has on on uh, podcasting and storytelling and and how often we see this kind of full drop well that is it for the news uh we are going to move on to my favorite part of the show which is when Tim recaps the ads worth watching Tim what do you have for us this week? Well, you know, first of all, I, I wanted to chat briefly about the uh, SNL's fake Pepsi ad. I think we mentioned it earlier. Uh, Jason, you wrote about that this week. Uh, maybe you could just fill us in on a little bit of, on what happened on Saturday night. Uh, obviously, SNL decided to sort of take a shot at Pepsi based on their giant fail of last week. Sure. I think we all knew SNL was going to do something, and the question just was what? Were they going to maybe put... Kendall Jenner in some other crazy situation or have something going on where you hand somebody a Pepsi and all of a sudden, you know, there's world peace or whatever. And they took a really uh, clever approach where they had the supposed writer director of the spot minutes before they're about to film. He's on the phone talking to his sister and 
He's saying, oh, I have this great idea for this, this spot we're about to shoot. He explains it to her. He's so excited. And then there's just silence. We don't hear her end of the conversation. And, you know, slowly as he talks to more and more of his friends and just gets an earful from them, you know, reality sets in and he realizes, oh, this is the worst idea ever for for an ad. <laughs> By then, it's too late. But it was a really yeah. clever way of of, of doing the uh, of spoofing the ad. Yeah, why don't we uh, listen to a few a few seconds of it? Because uh, I love uh, Beck. It's Beck Bennett who plays the the director, and <laughs> he's got very very funny uh, reaction after the long silences. Let, let's listen to a, a piece of it here. It's great, yeah. I mean, okay, so, well, it's, it's an homage to uh, the resistance. So there's this huge protest in the street, reminiscent of Black Lives Matter, and so everybody's marching, right? And they get to these police officers, and you think it's gonna go bad because there's kind of like a standoff, and then Kendall Jenner walks in, and she walks up to one of the police officers, and she hands him a Pepsi. And then that Pepsi brings everybody together. <laughs> I mean, isn't that, like, the best ad ever? So yeah, I mean, I thought you know, obviously, this is an ad that was ripe for the takedown, and uh, I thought it really cleverly caught the fact that these guys were in a bubble. It took a, a phone call, you know, several phone calls to sort of people outside the set to realize that anything at all might be wrong <laughs> with this concept. Except Kendall so, Jenner thought it was cute, you know. At right, the end, she's talking the to end. Chloe, she who's actually up, yeah. the smartest Kardashian. And I'm surprised she okayed it in this. <laughs> I will say my favorite part of the uh, that, of that spoof was where they said that Kendall had a 45 second out, and I'm pretty sure that was fairly close to reality. I can't imagine she spent more than probably an hour in total on the set of that ad. <laughs> That's true. Awesome. Well, um, so there was that. The other the other campaign I wanted to talk about is the new Johnsonville campaign out of Droga Five, and I'm sure you guys remember last year Droga stumbled on this pretty cool way of emphasizing how Johnsonville is all about its employees and how it really values them and that they're, they're central to the brand. Uh, they did this by actually getting the employees themselves to come up with the concepts for the ads. And so they did several of these last year, and it was, it was a pretty fun, uh, fun idea to, to, you know, to, to get the employees to do this. There was a famous ad, probably the, the, the most well-known of the bunch, was called Jeff and His Forest Friends. And it's this guy, this Johnsonville employee named Jeff, um, I think Droga just asked these guys to come up with script ideas. And so this guy, Jeff, came up with this idea for an ad where he's just sitting in the forest having conversations with various talking animals about sausage. And <laughs> As one does. Yeah. And it was a very bizarre idea. And, and you know, Droga is no stranger to strange ideas and, and offbeat comedy. And so they took basically took the scripts and they had, uh, you know, they had the employees provide the voiceover and they, and they created the visuals around that. And so last year's were pretty good. So they've, not surprisingly, they've built on that idea and they've done two more of these. Um, one of them has kind of a Spinal Tap vibe uh, and the other one's kind of a 70s game show theme. And so the spots, um, like last year, they opened with on-screen text that says, um, at Johnsonville, our, our people are responsible for everything, even the commercials. And so the, the first ad is a guy named Todd, who apparently he's worked in the Johnsonville Transportation Department for 22 years. And once upon a time, he was in a band, um, some kind of cover band. I forget the name, but they were 
they basically the, his idea for a commercial is to get get his band back together and sing a song about the new flame grilled chicken, which is um, apparently Johnsonville's first foray outside of sausage. They they have this new flame grilled chicken product. So Todd and his um, aging bandmates sing a song called "Delicious Convenient Chicken," which is pretty amusing. I think the second ad though is 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 even weirder and and in some ways better. Uh, it has this employee named Cole who's who dreams up this idea for an ad around a '70s game show called "Guess the Price of That Food," and these contestants <laughs> these contestants have to guess um, how much a pack of of Johnsonville sausages. And I just love the the back and forth on the dialogue. So maybe we can listen to a brief clip of that. Okay, in my Johnsonville commercial, they open on a game show set in the '70s. The host of the show is Murphy Charles, and he says, "Welcome back to Guess the Price of That Food." Today we got Johnsonville smoked sausage made with 100% premium pork. Some brands mix meats and add fillers, but not Johnsonville. The contestants so, start in yeah, they guess, $450, they guess super high, and just really funny $800, $1,100, $1,100, $1,100, $1,100, $1,100, $1,100, $1,100, $1,100, $1,100, $1,100, $1,100, $1,100, $1,100, $1,100, $1,100, $1,100, $1,100, $1,100, $1,100,
I know it's really boring, but my whole family got eaten by sharks. Oh gosh, let's let's put it. And I haven't really dealt with it. Okay, let's. So these go. ads are definitely strange. I uh, you know, I didn't really know what to make of them at first, but, um, but I think really what's happening here is that it's. Uh, you know, Chipotle is trying to be a little goofier, maybe, okay. uh, in the wake of all the troubles that they've had over the last wow. year. You know, it's probably Thanks a little harder for them to do Thank the kind you. of grand, serious, kind of purpose-driven advertising that they're known for. And so this kind of feels a bit like a reboot. And uh, the ads are certainly kind of weird, um, but it's nice to see Venables kind of giving, giving this brand a fresh approach. And it should be interesting to see how they build on this. Well, great. Well, thank you, Tim, as always, for rounding up the ads worth watching each week. And it is time to move on to our big discussion of the week. All right. This week was our City Spotlight on Atlanta. So City Spotlight is a series that we're doing this year where we take a look at specific markets outside of New York and L.A. Uh, we have an L.A. issue each year in the magazine. But this was a chance to open it up uh, kind of beyond the coasts and uh, and hit up some of the markets that are having really you know, a little more specific of a story to tell. Uh, and the first one was Atlanta. This is honestly a pretty easy uh, package to work on because so much is happening in Atlanta right now. The brand scene, which has always been very strong, thanks to, uh, of course, Coca-Cola, has been there a very long time. You've got Home Depot. You've got uh, Delta. Uh, you've got UPS. I mean, there are so many mega brands there. It actually has the third highest concentration of Fortune 500 companies of any city in, in America, uh, number one being New York, number two being Houston. And so Atlanta is a close third. Uh, but yeah, definitely known as a big brand hub, but it's also right now a startup hub. It's an innovation kind of center. It's become home to the financial tech uh, boom, which is basically the companies that handle all of your digital transactions. Every time you swipe your card on just about anything, 70% of those transactions go through Atlanta uh, because of this financial tech uh, industry that's that's based there. Uh, there's a company called NCR, used to be National Cash Register. Uh, they used to make cash registers. Now they make swiping devices for credit cards. They moved from Dayton, Ohio, moved their uh, headquarters to Atlanta and are creating thousands of jobs there. Uh, so, you know, certainly a fascinating place. And, of course, the TV and film industry has really blown up there. You almost can't watch anything without Made in Georgia appearing at the end. And we're going to have Jason tell us a little bit about what he learned on that front. Uh, first, I want to open it up just we did a really fun video on our site where I sat down with five kind of business and city leaders. Uh, we had an artist and a restaurateur and nonprofit owner, uh, city councilman. We had uh, just a, a nice little cross-section of Atlanta in one place, asked them a few questions. I wanted to start off with some comments from a city councilman named Kwanzaa Hall. He's also a candidate for mayor, uh, the current mayor, uh, Kasim Reed, who we also talked to. He's going to be finishing his final term uh, this year. And so Kwanzaa Hall is running uh, to take that seat. He had some really interesting things to say uh, about Atlanta's impact on the world, basically. When I travel around the world to cities, I mean, it doesn't matter if I'm in Warsaw, I'm in Athens, I'm in the Middle East or in South America. The first thing I do late night is to go to a club. And every time I go, Atlanta music is playing. Yeah, you know, I mean, and then if I have a conversation, it's like Walking Dead or Hunger Games. I mean, you know, Fast 7, you know, so people start, they see us in so many different ways. And uh, another little, uh, you know, tidbit of that conversation I want to share, because this is something I certainly noticed going out there. There are certain communities that are, let's say, more more welcoming than others in terms of uh, 
you know, when when you move to the city, uh, do you feel like you're really going to be welcomed as a part of it? Atlanta is definitely a place where it's it's all, honestly very hard to even find a native Atlantan uh, because so many people have moved there. It's just, uh, you know, you, you throw a rock, you're going to hit 20 people who've moved there and have a hard time finding anybody who's actually from there. But uh, the city's actually really embraced that. And uh, here's uh, Councilman Quanza uh, Hall one more time talking about uh, kind of the, the welcoming culture and how they're, they're quite proud of that. So we're actually growing because of the new people transplanted. So if you've been here five years, you're almost a native. Yep. Yeah. 10 years, you're definitely born here. True. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And if you've been here 15 years, you're, you're definitely an Atlantan, ATA-lian. Yeah. So there's some authenticity that people earn. They earn their stripes very quickly here. So, Christine, you also uh, went out to Atlanta for this package, interviewed several brands. I guess first, had you been to Atlanta before? No, I hadn't. So oh, I got okay. to kind of experience it for the first time. Yeah. Well, well, what did you think? I mean, what hit you as just kind of a first-time visitor and the, the vibe of the city? Um, well, I stayed downtown, so I didn't really get to check out the neighborhoods because I didn't have a car. So I feel like I've heard the neighborhoods are really great, but um, I went to the world of Coca-Cola and that was fun. Um, and then I visited Home Depot's headquarters, which are kind of in a suburb. So I got to experience Atlantic traffic. So, um, but then <laughs> also, um, and then uh, I got to go to Delta's headquarters, which are on the campus of the airport. Um, and that was amazing. I got to see the uh, command center, which was really cool. Um, it's like NASA in there. So that was fun. The um, let's talk about some of that real quick. Talk about some of the stories you wrote. Uh, I, I loved your feature on Coca-Cola where you talked about how this is obviously a very difficult time. You know, recapping, like going back to the 80s and 90s, the Cola Wars ended in a really interesting place. I know we've even talked about this on the podcast recently, but essentially Coke uh, won on one level. They they won the Cola Wars to be the dominant sodas. Uh, but Pepsi uh, kind of found a new route for success by buying up food brands. That's, you know, that's had pros and cons for Coke. The big one being that, uh, you know, when you live by the soda, you die by the soda. And right now, soda is not, you know, sugary soda is not doing well. So so what did Coke tell you about uh, kind of their plan for growth? Right. So their plan is to invest more in juices, waters, and dairy. They also own the uh, Fairlife milk brand. Um, so they're also inter introducing um, vitamin C infused beverages in Japan and uh, China because those are popular with consumers there. So that's basically what they're doing is they are diversifying in those other categories as much as they can. You mentioned that they're also removing sugar. I mean, not altogether, of course, but they're reducing yes. the, the sugar intake in, in how many of their drinks? Um, I think it was something like 500. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, definitely in a period of transformation. Uh, on the other, Delta feels like is a bit on the other end of it in the sense that their moment of truth came, uh, you know, several years back when they were uh, facing bankruptcy. And what has been their path to becoming kind of the, the dominant airline, at least in terms of, of consumer perception? Right. Um, so their strategy is to focus on their employees and how they treat them. And actually, when um, Delta was bankrupt in the 80s, um, they all the employees invested in a plane. They bought a plane for Delta, um, which kind of 
you know, is emblematic of what Delta is focusing on now. They're all about giving back to their employees, including their employees and their ad campaigns. Um, you know, just focusing on service. And um, the CMO, Tim Mapes, mentioned um, focusing on Southern hospitality. Um, so that's kind of uh, what their plan is about now. And they're also um, just emphasizing the customer experience. Um, so it's kind of hmm. what they're up to. My, my one beef, uh, and Tim, you may remember this when we've written about Delta's ads uh, recently, is that, uh, and I'm going to see them on Thursday. We're having a reception in Atlanta, and maybe I'll maybe I'll mention this if I if I get a drink or two in me beforehand. But their <laughs> their ads start with these really jarring noises, and that's fine, except that they show their ads on their flights, and so you put in your earphone or your your you know you put on your ear your you know whatever you're, you're listening on your headphones, and then it just dives in with like an engine noise. <laughs> or, or like yeah. the new, the new one is the sound of the dwarves, the seven dwarves singing "Hi Ho." <laughs> like, oh yeah! And it's like you can look across the airplane and just see people like ripping the headphones off their heads <laughs> because it's like yeah, this. you know, it's it's widening. Kennedy New York is is the agency for Delta, and they've, you know, they, they've they've done some interesting work for Delta. Not not all of it's to my taste exactly. A lot of the uh, Donald Sutherland voiceover kind of highfalutin work is kind of I haven't really gotten gotten that I don't really I don't really get it but but uh, you know they do some interesting digital work too for them that's uh, that's been well received but I know what you mean they do it is true that that engine noise at the beginning is jarring for sure yeah and like the the hi-ho one starts with like high-pitched whistling and you know again like sitting on an airplane with those here but yeah it's just something where I've noticed grabbing your attention (laughs) <laughs> yes. You will listen to this. Um, we did a list of the 20 uh, rising brand stars in Atlanta. Our goal with this list was not to feature the CMO of Delta or the CMO of Coke, uh, but instead to kind of highlight either the next generation of, of you know top marketing talent in the city or the uh, kind of the heads at some of the smaller groups or nonprofits or even startups in that space. It's a really fascinating list. I'm not going to subject you all to, to hearing them. You know, they don't have any name recognition really, but the brands are a fascinating mix. So I definitely recommend you check out the, you know, if you Googled uh, Adweek 20 rising stars in Atlanta, you'll find it. Uh, but uh, we're going to, yeah, we're going to have a nice reception on Thursday and uh, get to congratulate, uh, you know, people from, we've got Coke and Sweetwater, which is the craft beer that's based in Atlanta and has been growing tremendously and uh, you know, World Pay, which is part of that uh, financial tech industry, and of course Delta and, and a lot of these other you know, Home Depot, uh, but uh, Arby's is based there. Uh, so really fascinating mix of brands. Definitely recommend checking that out. But now I want to talk about TV and film. So Jason, this is a story you covered for us. It really was to me one of the most interesting. And and having watched this develop over the years, it's quite amazing. So so first, I guess tell us about the scope of how big the film and TV industry in Georgia has become. Yeah, so this was incredibly fascinating to me. I knew that there was a boon in TV and film production in, in Atlanta, and really Georgia overall, but most of it's centered around Atlanta. But I had no idea the, uh, the scale of that. So in the last, in fiscal year 2016, so that's July 2015 to the end of June 2016, there were 245 film and TV productions that were shot in Georgia. Um, They spent 2.7 
0.02 billion during that time, and they generated an economic impact of 7.2 billion. Uh, and a decade ago, which is really around the time that the first incentives started there, uh, there were only 48 production budgets who spent 93 million and generated an impact of of 241.5 million. So the time the the amount of growth in just a decade has been astounding. Now, I, I feel like we always notice Georgia because of the made in Georgia, you know, that pops up at the end of, of, you know, just about half the TV shows you watch these days. But that's actually part of Georgia's success is the deal that they make with that stinger. Uh, d- tell us a little bit about how what kind of incentives they offer and how that set them apart from other states. Yeah, absolutely. So they first started to do these incentives. The first incentive package they put together was in 2005. And even the Georgia officials admitted to me it was a complete mess. Nobody understood how to navigate it. The amount of money that you got uh, incentives for depended on how many people from Georgia you employed. Anyways, it was incredibly confusing. So they scrapped that. They started again in uh, twenty, uh, sorry, 2008. And this time they came up with this great formula. So there's a 20% tax incentive. Additionally, there's another 10% on top of that if you either put this Made in Georgia logo at the end of your um, at, at the at the end of your film or TV production, or if you uh, participate in some um, in some t- tourism uh, movies or like kind of work with the Georgia with the state tourism board and and help do some marketing for the state. And that additional 10% was a way to sell the package. For the governor at the time, who was a little wary of, of putting this through. And this was a way of saying, okay, well, this is going to really help Georgia as well. So now productions can get up to 30% of uh, their money back in these tax incentives. Uh, and it's been incredibly successful. Um, and as a lot of the, the incentive programs in surrounding states have crumbled during that time, Georgia's has just been thriving. Yeah, you mentioned in your story that Louisiana, which I felt like in the 90s especially, you saw a lot of things being filmed there. Uh, But, uh, you know, one of the production folks you talked to said, yeah, I mean, theoretically, they send you money back after the fact. But, you know, depending on kind of the state of the economy in that in that state, and it wasn't just Louisiana, it sounded like it was a few. You may never see that money or it may take you years to get that money. Yeah, and I think the other problems that other states have is they didn't have an inter- they didn't have an infrastructure there. So the idea is a place like Michigan, you throw a bunch of money out there, but there's nothing that's existing there already. So everybody's kind of, you have to kind of import everybody. Whereas Georgia, they they had been making some films there over the year, and now they have this great infrastructure, this great feeder system. But it's also been interesting in the last day or two. A, a lot of the, uh, the the social traffic around this story has been from people in states where their incentive programs have collapsed. So Texas, Florida, North Carolina, all these people looking at these numbers in my story, you know, seven billion, and just lamenting the loss of their incentive programs there. Well, and what's fascinating to me is that, t- you know, film industry can can pop up in a state and you almost never see it. You never cross paths with it. I mean, Get Out, uh, the horror movie uh, that was such a huge hit, was actually filmed here in Alabama, uh, where I live. But, you know, you don't stumble across the, those things. In Georgia, it's almost it's almost becoming a tourist attraction. Tell, tell us about what happened with Walking Dead after, after season one. 
Yeah, so uh, on the movie side, Marvel has really put the production on the, on the map but in Georgia. But on TV, it's really been The Walking Dead. So that started in 2010, uh, again, just a year or two after the incentive program uh, started. And that first season featured at Atlanta. And then in, after that, as, as the uh, show moved to other locations, they relocated to Sonoya, which is about 30 miles out of Atlanta. And they've set up shop there ever since. And now it's become this tourism mecca. Everybody wants to come see where Walking Dead was filmed. Uh, Norman Reedus and Greg Nicotero, one of the executive producers, have opened up a restaurant right on Main Street in Sonoya. And in these past six, seven years, they have completely rebuilt the town um, around the Walking Dead. I mean, that, that's just it, and it really does highlight kind of the, the permanence, you know, that this isn't just oh, we're going to fly in and film with a pretty backdrop and then go home. Uh, you know, that it, the film industry is really is really there. I thought it was also interesting that The Hunger Games, the, the first movie was not filmed there, correct? But then the, the next three were. Correct. So early on in these incentives, they didn't have the studio space to accommodate all the productions that wanted to film there. And since then, uh, the studio space has just expanded uh, incredibly. You had Pinewood Studios building a big uh, studio there, and they've already expanded it just a couple of years after opening it. I mean, Marvel basically has made it their home base for almost every film that they make, and that's you know three or four movies a year now. Uh, so it's it's you now have this ring of, of movie studios and production studios around circling Atlanta. So there is a there is a permanence here as long as these deals stay in place. And that is the one thing everybody was saying, you know, this starts with the governor's office and the current governor, Governor Deal. He his term will be up in 2018. So hopefully whoever comes in after that will continue these incentive programs and if they don't it'll be interesting to see what happens yeah another thing that's kind of rare to see in our modern world is that a lot of atlanta's success in both the film tv industry but then also in you know across the board in a lot of the brands and corporations their big focus is bringing corporate headquarters to atlanta uh, most notably NCR, as we mentioned before, which isn't the sexiest company to talk about. But man, what a gigantic uh, source of, of great jobs uh, for your industry. A real hit to Dayton to lose that, but a real uh, success for Atlanta. But one that uh, maybe is a little sexier is uh, Porsche North America, uh, which chose Atlanta as not only the site for its uh, North American headquarters, but also for its Porsche experience. Uh, where you can go and drive their cars and it's got a museum and all that so uh, but the mayor told us that uh, a lot of that has been through just bipartisan hard work between the mayor uh, the administration which is a democrat and the republican governor of georgia and he said that you know that that collaboration and that willingness to kind of rise above the political fray uh, has really been the key to their success. It was kind of heartwarming to hear that at a time where you just don't see any cooperation across party lines uh, at all. I, I actually talked to Frank Patterson, the president of uh, Pinewood Atlanta, Pinewood Studios, uh, as uh, I believe you mentioned, is just a gigantic uh, production spot uh, in um, in Atlanta. They are they are working on a billion dollar movie that I don't know if they've unveiled yet which one it is, but they said, "Oh, we're filming our largest production ever here now." They're expanding it to be what I believe is the largest, uh, basically, film site outside of L.A. Uh, it, once it's done, I, I think it's already third or something like that. But anyway, I talked to the president, uh, Frank Patterson, about 
the impact uh, that the TV industry has had, he really focused less on the economic impact, which he said, yeah, that's great, uh, but that he's really impressed with just how it has kind of created a boom in the media industry, media encompassing so many different things and, and aspects of creation beyond just TV and movies. Let's listen to uh, what he had to say about that. What Donald Glover did was bring his unique look, his unique vision mm -hmm. of his world to the world. Mm -hmm. That's an artist with voice. We call it the movie business, but let's just call it media. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Media, let's yeah, talk yeah. music, let's yeah. talk short form, long form. You know, uh, media and technology is makes this, uh, uh, just as, again, as an outside looking in, unlike any other marketplace I know. Well, I definitely uh, recommend everyone check out adweek.com slash Atlanta. That's a really easy way to find all of our stories. Uh, it's a really fun read. Thank you to Christine, Jason, for both of you. Uh, we also, Marty Swant, our tech reporter, did a great piece on the financial tech industry explosion. Our list of the 20 rising brand stars is a really fun read, uh, even if you're not in Atlanta. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was a great package. I was really uh, happy with how it all turned out. I learned a lot as someone who's been going to Atlanta off and on throughout my life. Uh, I really did learn a heck of a lot, and I was tremendously impressed going and visiting the city. There are parts of downtown that uh, were absolutely abandoned in the 90s. You know, you, it, maybe people went there during the day for work, but they certainly didn't come back at night. Now those are the hottest parts of town, and everyone's dying to live there. Uh, there's a, an amazing uh, facility called the Pont City Market. It, it actually used to be the Sears and Roebuck Warehouse. So, like, all the stuff that you could order from the Sears and, and Roebuck uh, catalog was in that warehouse. And this is where, so of course, it's gigantic. It just goes on forever. And then it sat empty and kind of blighted for a long time. And they've restored that into office space, mixed use, retail. Uh, Rebecca Colors, one of our uh, one of our writers, uh, is actually works for a company that's based there. And uh, so I got to go visit her and walk around and visited MailChimp and a few of the other companies that are based in that building. Uh, really an incredible place. Just what a what an amazing thing to do with a, a huge old building. They've built a massive greenway that you can bike down that has uh, enabled kind of a, an impossible dream of being able to live in Atlanta without a car, which is not something in the 90s I would have ever thought would be possible. So just a, a really fascinating city uh, to visit. And like I said, as someone who's been there a lot throughout my life, is a very different place right now. So uh, congratulations to everyone in Atlanta. We uh, have a lot of other packages coming up soon. We've got Jason's been hard at work with our other media team on the TV Upfronts issue of the magazine, which comes out next week. We've got our Media All-Stars, where we look at uh, kind of the key players in the media industry. We're doing a list of the kind of superstars in the MarTech industry, the marketing technology field. We've got our Graduate's Guide to Marketing and Media coming up soon. So if you know anyone who's going to be graduating soon, that's a really helpful resource for them. Ooh, just a lot of stuff coming up. It's going to be a busy few months. And, uh, yeah, so keep an eye on adweek.com for all that. Don't forget you can drop us an email at podcast at adweek.com. We love hearing from you. And uh, send us any questions you got. That's podcast at adweek.com. Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Christina Monlos and edited by Kevin Eck. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Kevin. I believe this is Kevin's last episode editing for us before he moves on to a new rollout in California. And once again, we're going to miss you, Kevin. Thank you so much for all your work helping get this podcast off the ground. You've been a huge part of our growth, and we're going to miss you. 
And uh, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast from. You can even just click the number of stars, and you don't have to write out a full review if you don't want to, although we love reading those as well. But those reviews help us reach new audiences, and they mean a lot to us personally. So thank you for those who've left reviews. If you have not, please take a moment to do so. Make me feel happy. And you can hit us on Twitter. Let us know what you think. I'm Griner, G-R-I-N-E-R, on Twitter. You can hit all of us on Adweek, and each of us is pretty active on there. All right. uh, We will talk to you next week. This week's podcast was brought to you by Huge, the fastest growing agency in the past 10 years. Huge helps companies transform for the digital economy by applying the principles of user experience design to everything from business strategy to product development and marketing campaigns. Make something you love with Huge.